In mid-February 1996, four FBI agents arrived in Lincoln, Montana, an old gold mining town on the Blackfoot River. We were um, covert. (laughs) We didn't advertise who we were to the general public. Uh, We didn't uh, uh, dress like uh, normal FBI agents would in suits and white shirts and ties. Max Knoll was leading the team, and he and the three other agents did their best to blend in. They wore Wrangler jeans and Western shirts with snapback buttons, drove around in a rented pickup truck. They'd drop in and drop out of town, trying to stay undetected. They spent their nights about an hour away, in the nearest city, Helena. Before anyone in the FBI was going to arrest Ted Kaczynski, Max's team had to figure out exactly where he lived, which wasn't as simple as you might think. Because Kaczynski lived in a rural area, his address was a rural route number. There were no uh, addresses like you have in towns and cities. It was just rural route number four or whatever it was. It had been two weeks since David Kaczynski first reached out to the FBI through his lawyer, saying he had letters from his brother that sounded an awful lot like the Unabomber. And in those two weeks, the leaders of the task force had become convinced. Ted was their guy. But they couldn't just swoop in and grab him. That's not how it works. They had to get a search warrant from a federal judge first. And to get a search warrant, they needed to convince a judge of two things. One, that they had probable cause. And two, that they knew exactly what they would be searching. And so we were tasked with determining the precise location of the cabin and getting a physical description of the cabin. On his first day in Lincoln... Max had a Montana-based FBI agent drive him a few miles down Stemple Pass Road, which disappears into the forest south of town. And he showed me a series of mailboxes located on the west side of the road, one of which said uh, Ted Kaczynski, or T.J. Kaczynski, I believe. Uh, So we knew that we were in the right neighborhood. But the mailbox was all Max could see, And what he needed to see and get photos of was the cabin itself, somewhere up a narrow canyon, surrounded by trees, well off the road. We needed to do that surreptitiously and uh, not uh, bring attention to who we were and what we were doing uh, because we were concerned that would Ted Kaczynski find out that we were there as law enforcement, uh, he might possibly flee into the surrounding mountains. So Max and his team start trying to sneak in undetected. Their first plan is to take snowmobiles up a trail that runs on a hill above the cabin, then have a couple agents silently snowshoe down toward it, get photos, and get out. They were probably, I don't know, 7,500 yards away from it. They heard a door open and close. Well, sound travels very well at a high altitude in the mountains, and they knew The only occupied cabin or building around there was Kaczynski's cabin. They know the sound is probably Ted, and they immediately run off. Never see the cabin, much less take a photo of it. They report the failed attempt to Unabom headquarters, and word comes back. Don't do anything risky like that again. We'll use a spy satellite instead. 
and they were very uh, adamant about that, that you could take a photo from a satellite of a dime on a street corner in San Francisco and read the date and the inscription on the dime. Max and his team send the coordinates. Not that hard. You've played with Google Earth, right? Super high-tech cameras are going to snap some pictures from space and reveal the cabin in spectacular detail. And several days later, we got beautiful black and white, large photographs of trees and lots of snow, essentially useless in identifying the cabin uh, for the uh, affidavit. So now we were kind of at a uh, conundrum as to what to do. They try a spy plane. It circles at 10,000 feet for half an hour, snapping photos. And again... They were beautiful pictures of lots of trees and lots of snow. That's when Max gets a tip from a local informant. The Montana Fish and Wildlife Department sometimes flies a plane low over the area to monitor a herd of elk near Ted's cabin. So a small airplane flying over that cabin would not really give much concern uh, to Kaczynski because it's a regular thing on the part of the state fish and game people. So they rent a prop plane and they go for it. They're not going to be way up in the sky with cutting-edge surveillance technology. They're basically going to buzz Ted. It's a local pilot and one of the agents on Max's team, a guy named Dave Weber. We gave him a 35-millimeter uh, Nikon camera with a 200-millimeter lens, and off they went into the wild blue yonder and flew up the canyon, and uh, Dave hung out the side of the, uh, the window of the plane and snapped some very good pictures, which truly depicted the cabin. This is Project Unibomb, an Apple original podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. I'm Eric Benson. Episode 7, The Arrest. The informant who told Max about the plane that monitored the elk herds was a guy named Butch Gehring. He was a well-known, gregarious character in Lincoln. He'd been a Green Beret, a bull rider, and now he ran a lumber mill just down the road from Ted's cabin. Ted and David bought the land Ted lived on from Butch's dad back in the 70s. Butch was Ted's closest neighbor. The only uh, way to uh, get to his cabin was going to be... uh, up the mouth of that canyon, or up a private road owned by Butch Gearing. People coming to live off-grid in Lincoln, Montana, was very normal. That's Jamie Gearing, one of Butch's daughters. Butch died in 2012. Jamie grew up in a small cabin her parents built on a 200-acre property that also included the lumber mill. The area around them was full of dense woods and vast, hard-to-traverse expanses. The perfect place to live if you wanted to drop out of society. There were some Vietnam vets that had moved to the area that lived in the outskirts of Lincoln, and they wanted privacy. Um, We would see them in town at the gas station or at the grocery store, and, um, you know, they looked rugged. They looked like they lived in the woods. But they were still known in the community. We didn't need to know, you know, their, their backstory but we were very aware of them. Ted was one of those guys in the woods, though he wasn't that rugged. He came to town every now and then, had a friendly relationship with the local librarian. 
Jamie and her family would see him pretty often. My parents, uh, in the early years, would just refer to Ted as the hermit. Oh, our neighbor, the hermit. Um, and and there was never anything negative they had had to say about him. I mean, he was on the surface a good neighbor. He kept to himself, and um, you know, if we met him in the driveway, we might chat for a couple minutes in those very early years. They had Ted over for dinner a few times in the late 70s and early 80s, Jamie says. But as time wore on, the relationship grew more strained. The sawmill was definitely a difficult thing for Ted. Um, he would hear the noise of the mill from his cabin, and any time he would leave his cabin, he would pass by it. And it was just, I think, a constant reminder that he wasn't truly able to to escape the way he wanted to. Ted wrote in his journals that he'd come to Lincoln looking for peace and quiet. But instead, even in the woods, he was tormented by grating mechanical noise. Airplanes, snowmobiles, chainsaws, like the cosmos playing a joke on him. Go ahead, live in your tiny cabin in the middle of nowhere. You still can't escape technology. When he discovered that one of his favorite places, an isolated plateau, had been defiled with a road, he took to his journal in grief. It's as if I had had a taste of paradise and then lost it. So Ted lashed out. He wrote in detail about some of the things we've mentioned before, setting booby traps for dirt bikers, vandalizing backwoods cabins, even shooting a rancher's cow. My, my father's sawmill was sanded. And what, what is sanding a sawmill? If you put sand or sugar into the engine of a sawmill and it gets like into the gas lines, it shuts it down. And so that's exactly what somebody did to um, my father's sawmill. There's no proof that Ted did this, but it's not a stretch to imagine that he did. By the time the FBI came to town, Ted didn't like Butch and Butch didn't like Ted. And the fact that Butch controlled access to Ted's cabin, it made him the perfect candidate to be the FBI's key informant on the ground. So Max went over to the lumber mill to meet him. This isn't a big, fancy Northwestern lumber mill. This is a one-man operation, which has a uh, log deck that has the great big saw on it that the logs come down to. I mean, it's right out of, uh, you know, the comic books type of thing. And we met butch at the log deck now we were standing outside and it was extremely cold and there was a light snow coming down and i told butch because i didn't want to lay all my cards on the table right out front and i told him i was with the fbi we were there conducting an investigation because we believed that ted kaczynski had been sending threatening letters through the mail which was true, but it wasn't the complete truth. Butch and Max quickly sized each other up. They were both stout, no-bullshit, flag-on-their-sleeve Westerners. They could work together. So Max told Butch what was really going on, that they thought Ted was the Unabomber. Eventually, they got friendly enough that Butch would give Max shit about the job the FBI was doing. Butch Gearing asked me uh, one day if we got a good picture of him. And I said, what do you mean, Butch? And Butch said, well, 
I was standing out on my lumber deck day before yesterday, and I heard the uh, drone of an airplane flying around about 10,000 feet. And he said, "Hey, I figured that was you guys trying to get pictures, so I waved at you." And Butch Gearing became my eyes and my ears. I could go and talk to Butch. I could call him on the telephone, and every morning,、uh, Butch would.、Uh, Get up early as he always did, and he would walk up his skid road, and he would look at the cabin and determine if Kaczynski was still there. Because one of our principal concerns was that he was going to get out of that cabin and either escape into the mountains or come out of that cabin and leave the area with a bomb. But Ted never appeared, so Butch offered to take Max to him, or at least the property. He said, "Well, come on, let's go. I'll walk you up there." All this time, they'd been trying to spy on Ted in secret, but Butch assured Max, "There's no reason to worry. Even if he sees us, he won't、uh, be excited about seeing me." So I'm always taking people up the skid road, and so Butch walked、uh, up the skid road, and、uh, as we got to a point、uh, right across from Kaczynski's cabin, which was about forty yards away. Butch's、uh, two Chesapeake Bay dogs、uh, flushed a, a deer out of a thicket and started chasing it, and they chased it right across in front of Kaczynski's cabin, barking and growling as they chased. And all of a sudden, the、um, door to the cabin opened, and this wild-looking individual stuck his head and shoulders out of the cabin and looked directly at us. At which time, Butch Gearing just waved and says, "Hi, Teddy. It's just me." And he kind of nodded and went back into the cabin. And I remember thinking to myself at the time,、uh, "My God, that's what we've been looking for all these years." Because the person that I saw was not the image that I had conjured up、uh, of a former. Mathematics professor, Harvard graduate,、uh, uh, who was our suspect. I'm looking at a guy who fits the perfect description of the eccentric hermit living in a ten by twelve foot cabin with no electricity, no running water, and no visible means of transportation other than a rickety old bicycle that he rode to town. And it isn't convincing me、uh, that he's the person who's built what has become pretty sophisticated、uh, bombs and been mailing them from San Francisco and Oakland and Sacramento. How in the world did he do that? So I didn't say he didn't or couldn't, but I was very skeptical of whether or not it was possible. Ted was the most wanted man in America, but there on the ground in Montana, in real life, he wasn't a seemingly all-powerful terrorist. He was destitute. He'd recently sold back half his property to David after saying he wanted nothing to do with him ever again, because he needed the cash. That winter in early 1996, he was subsisting on snowshoe hares he'd shot with his rifle, carefully tracking the rations until the snow melted. Weeks went by. And Ted never even left the cabin, which in a way was good. Max and the other agents knew he must be running low on supplies. He'd have to go to town soon. He would do that the way he always had. He would
put on his uh, heavy coat. It was still cold up there. He would jump on his rickety bicycle, and he would ride to town down Stemple Pass Road. And when that occurred, we would um, swoop in and stop him and detain him. If he had a bomb with him or a weapon with him, it wouldn't be easily available to him and quickly take him into custody uh, so we could serve the warrant. The FBI kept its presence in Lincoln small. But an hour away in the city of Helena, the Bureau was ramping up as the early spring arrived. Terry Turchi, the head of the Unabom Task Force, and his boss, Jim Freeman, were flying in and out of Helena, bringing more and more agents from San Francisco, which had a downside. There was a leak somewhere. Among the hundreds of people who were now in the loop about Ted Kaczynski, someone had talked to a reporter. By the 1st of April, it became very apparent that they knew that we were investigating a prime suspect. They believed his name was Krasinski, somewhere around Lincoln, Montana. Anytime that a a major case such as this one is assigned to the Washington field office or is run out of headquarters itself, it becomes one of your priority targets because your competitors are going to see it that way. Jim Stewart was covering the Justice Department for CBS News at the time, and he'd already done several stories about the Unabomber. Throughout 1995 and early 96, whenever Jim talked with his sources in federal law enforcement, he'd float the question, this Unabomber thing, what are you hearing? And one day I received information that was very specific. So specific that it, the first thing I, you know, I felt I had to do was run it by the FBI. Uh, this information gave me the phonetic spelling of Ted Kaczynski's name. It gave me his location in a remote cabin near Lincoln, Montana, and the fact that it was under surveillance by the FBI. So Jim calls the FBI field office in Washington. And I repeated virtually verbatim what I'd been told and waited for a reaction. And after some pause, the person said, hold on a minute, went and talked to somebody else. The two of them got back on the phone, and the response was, well, you're on the right highway and you've taken the right exit ramp. But the FBI wasn't just going to confirm Jim Stewart's info and leave it at that. If CBS ran a story, that could easily jeopardize the operation and tip off Ted Kaczynski. The FBI still didn't even have a search warrant. So the FBI gets on the phone with the president of CBS News to try and work out a deal. I don't think anybody thought that the right thing to do was to put me on the air immediately. There was discussion about, well, here's their argument and and here's our consideration. And from our point of view, CBS's point of view, we don't want to do anything that's going to result in bodily harm or, or disruption of a prosecution. At the same time, though, we have proprietary information that we, you know, have, have, have gotten thoroughly, legitimately, and that we believe to be accurate. And we're not in the business of withholding information from the public. But they agreed to hold the story if the FBI guaranteed them the scoop. Before those calls with CBS, the operation in Montana was a waiting game. But now the FBI has no choice. They feel like they have to move. Suddenly, it seems like the entire task force is hopping on a plane from San Francisco to Helena. But a handful of agents are left behind, including, weirdly, Kathy Puckett. 
And this guy was crowing about something finally happening in the case. Um, he said, uh, "You ain't if you ain't in Montana, you ain't nobody in this case. <laughs> and I was standing right next to him when he said that. If you ain't in Montana, you ain't shit. I thought to myself, uh, how do you think we got there? You know, we wouldn't even be there if it wasn't for the work that we did that you have no idea about. Kathy says she kept going to work, waiting to be called to Montana. Eventually, she gets on the phone with Joel Moss, the agent who had shown Kathy the 23-page essay a couple months earlier. And I remember saying, God, I feel like, you know, I'm just... I'm just not a part of this, and I'm, I'm sick about it. And he said, you'll be here soon. Kathy also talks to her boss, Terry Turchi. He has one explicit instruction for her. Do not call David um, when they were executing a search warrant because they, they were just paranoid that he would had some way of, of letting Ted know that we were on the way and he could be over the Continental Divide and gone back in, up into Canada or something. And um, they forbade me to uh, contact him and warn him about the press that were going to be descending on him once this thing went public, and it was imminent. Before dawn on Wednesday, April 3rd, Max Knoll drives out to a steakhouse called the 7-Up Ranch and Resort on the outskirts of Lincoln. The FBI has rented it out as their command post. The owners of the 7-Up Ranch had a nice uh, continental breakfast for us and lots of coffee, and all of the... Uh, uh, people that uh, we brought in the day before uh, arrived and assembled there. And uh, Jim Freeman conducted a, uh, a briefing of what everybody's responsibilities were and where they would be and how it would uh, go down. Uh, we had a short special weapons and tactics briefing so that we knew for sure that uh, they knew what their part was in this, and uh, I think I briefed them a little bit on the, the topography and the geography and so forth. As of that morning, the FBI still didn't have a search warrant. The photos they'd collected, Max's personal sighting of Ted, everything Kathy Puckett had gotten from David Kaczynski since he agreed to help them. It was all compelling, but the Justice Department wasn't convinced. This was a huge case, even if they could get a federal judge to sign off and they arrested Ted, he was going to be represented by the best federal public defenders in the country, and they would certainly challenge the legitimacy of the search warrant in court. Did the FBI really have enough? I think that the criminal division was worried about whether there was sufficient evidence for a search warrant. Jamie Gorelick was the deputy attorney general at the time the number two in the DOJ behind Attorney General Janet Reno. And that the review of the search warrant was elevated uh, to uh, Merrick. Merrick, as in Merrick Garland, the current U.S. Attorney General. At the time, he was Gorelick's top deputy. A big sticking point for the DOJ was that the search warrant depended largely on linguistic analysis a comparison of Ted's old writings and the Unabomber's manifesto and communiques to the press. This was groundbreaking. Normally, search warrants are based on physical evidence, eyewitness accounts, nuts and bolts police stuff, and it made all the lawyers very uneasy. So Jamie and Merrick talked it out. 
He and I discussed that and agreed that the matched wording was sufficient for, uh, for the search warrant. But the government still needed a judge to sign off on the morning of April 3rd. Terry was in federal court trying to clear that last hurdle. So Max and everyone else had nothing to do but wait and wait and wait. It was mid-morning, I think around 10 o'clock or something, that uh, Jim got the telephone call at the 7-Up Ranch from Terry telling him that uh, the judge had signed the order. So they immediately deploy. A few agents take up positions in elk hunting cabins near Ted's property. Two SWAT teams dressed in ghillie suits, those camouflage jumpsuits covered in foliage that make people look like swamp monsters, form a perimeter around Ted's cabin. Max drives to Butch's lumber mill. The plan is for Max to approach Ted's cabin with two other people, a Montana-based FBI agent named Tom McDaniel and a Forest Service officer named Jerry Burns. Ted Kaczynski knows Jerry Burns. They've interacted before, so he's not going in disguise. But Max and the local FBI agent Tom are posing as surveyors from a mining company that Butch hired that winter to explore his property. Ted knows about the mining company, so the FBI figures he won't be suspicious when Jerry, the Forest Service officer, asks him to come out and show them where his property line is. Freeman finally said, okay, you know, on the radio, let's go. Put it into motion, and that was uh, shortly before noon on uh, April 3rd. Max, Tom, and Jerry walk from Butch's lumber mill to Ted's property line. The 40 yards to the cabin, you're exposed and out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I also knew he had uh, rifles in the cabin. I knew he had a 30 out six, and I knew he had a 22, uh, as well as maybe other weapons. And as we approached the cabin, as uh, Jerry was hailing him, uh, we didn't hear anything in the cabin. And we got right up to the cabin. And Jerry and Tom were directly in front of the cabin's door. I was standing on the corner of the cabin, and uh, we were exposed. There's no doubt about that. Because they're posing as mining reps, they're not wearing bulletproof vests, no body armor. Everything depends on Ted buying their disguise. Uh, No sound coming from the cabin, no response from within the cabin. For a split second, Max doubts the whole plan. He wonders... Is this really going to work? At which time the door opened, and Ted Kaczynski kind of stood in the door with it ajar, directly in front of Jerry Burns. I still um, (laughs) shake my head because he was covered um, in grease. His uh, jeans were essentially rotting off of him, big holes, and they were dragging off of him. Huge uh, head of hair, wild sticking out all over, uh, and he smelled terrible. He had a body odor that I could smell him for days afterwards. There's no way to describe it. It's time for Jerry to convince Ted to come out. And Jerry said, Hi, Mr. Kaczynski, I'm Jerry Burns with the U.S. Forest Service, and I have these two gentlemen here from the uh, mining company that's going to be doing exploration here in the spring, and uh, I'm trying to show them where your corner posts are Uh, so they don't, their employees don't encroach upon your property uh, when they come up here to do their exploration. And his response was, uh, my corner posts are clearly marked. And Jerry said, well, I understand that, Mr. Kaczynski, but there's still several feet of snow in this canyon, and uh, they're covered, and it would 
sure save us a lot of time if you came out and showed them to us as opposed to us tromping around on your property. And that got his attention. And he said, well, okay. And he started to come out of the cabin because he was still standing in the doorway. And he stopped and he said, well, let me get my coat. And Jerry reached out, grabbed him. Tom wrapped him up in a bear hug and they're struggling around. And I got to walk around in front of him with my weapon uh, directly to his face, identified myself as an FBI agent and that we were there to serve a search warrant on his property. As he says those words, Ted stops struggling. His muscles relax. He knows he's not going to get away. They cuff him, lead him down to one of the elk hunting cabins. There was an old wood-burning stove there and the only source of heat for the cabin. And the agents that were there um, from ATF was uh, trying to start a fire. And the cabin was filling up with smoke. And Kaczynski was sitting at this straight-back chair at this old Formica table. And the smoke was filling up the cabin. And he said, does he know how to build a fire? (laughs) I said, well, tell him. And so Kaczynski said, you need to open the flue. Once he opened the flue and stoked the fire, it started to draw. But uh, Kaczynski was, I know at that time, just shaking his head and saying, oh my God, are these the guys that caught me? They can't even build a fire in the cabin. (laughs) Inside the cabin, the task force had created a display for Ted. Timelines showing the 16 bombings, photographs from the incidents, the forensic sketch based on the eyewitness sighting in Salt Lake City. The idea was it might get Ted to talk. Max says Ted didn't even look at it. He kept asking me if he was under arrest, and I kept telling him no, he was under investigative detention. And he kept saying, well, can I get up and walk around? And I'd say no. And he said, well, can you take the handcuffs off? And I'd say no. He said, well, am I free to leave? And I said, no. And he looked at me in the eye and says, kind of sounds to me like I'm under arrest. <laughs> Actually, arresting Ted for a crime depended on what the FBI found in the cabin. The hope was that there would be some trace of Ted's crimes, maybe bomb-making materials. But if there was nothing, if it was just a cabin in the woods... The whole thing might unravel quickly. Max's job was to stay with Ted while the other agents conducted their search. I said, we're going to be here for a while while the search is going on. I don't know how long it's going to take. Uh, I'd like to talk with you. And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, I'll be happy to talk with you as long as we don't talk about the case. So for the next five hours, we talked about living in the mountains and uh, foraging in the mountains and hiking in the mountains and how the clear blue sky said, oh, was that you fellers up on the Humbug Contour Trail back in February? And then again later he would say, is that you that's been down at the Miller cabin for the last week or so? Ted hadn't realized the FBI was coming, but he knew something unusual was up. He just hadn't quite put it together in time. It was very uh, apparent that um, he was very intelligent and articulate. But at one point in the afternoon, I uh, said, um, I know from what I've read that you were a mathematics uh, professor at the University of California in Berkeley. And what kind of math did you teach at Berkeley? 
And he kind of sat up straight in the chair and pulled back and looked at me and said, uh, how much mathematics did you have in school? And I said, well, I had algebra and advanced algebra and geometry and solid geometry and a little trigonometry with a smattering of calculus. And he said, and it wouldn't do any good for me to try to explain to you what I taught because you wouldn't understand it. As the day wore on, a debate was raging inside the federal government. Can we charge this guy? Do we have enough evidence? It was evening on the East Coast when the debate made its way to the top law enforcement officials in the country. Louis Free, the director of the FBI, and Janet Reno, the U.S. Attorney General. It was Passover, and Merrick had invited uh, Janet to his Seder. This is Deputy Attorney General Jamie Gorelick again. And Louis called and said, we're, we're in the cabin. Everyone is okay. We have found bomb-making equipment. Can we charge Kaczynski as the Unabomber? Jamie wasn't at Merrick Garland's Passover Seder that night, but she was in the loop. And Merrick's view, uh, discussing it with the attorney general, was that that bomb-making equipment would be sufficient to charge uh, Kaczynski with possession of bomb-making material and not to charge uh, that he was the Unabomber. Over the next two weeks, the evidence team because they're worried about booby traps, moves painstakingly slowly through the cabin. They found a live bomb under Ted's bed, a Smith Corona typewriter with pica font and 2.54 centimeter spacing tucked in his loft, and what appeared to be a master copy of the manifesto, Industrial Society and Its Future. Uh, At which point Merrick, after discussing this with uh, Janet, said you can charge Ted Kaczynski with being the Unabomber. On April 3rd, around the time Max Knoll was walking up to Ted's cabin to apprehend him, Molly Flynn, the agent who had first recognized the significance of Ted's 23-page essay, got a call. ABC, CNN, The Times, and The Post were all on the story now, too. Jim Stewart got his scoop. He went on the air at 3.15 p.m. Eastern Time to break the news that the FBI had detained the suspected Unabomber. Shortly after that, the world learned how the Unabomber had been found. Nearly every outfit reported that he'd been turned in by his brother, David. Here's Molly. I was kind of flabbergasted, and I was told by, I think, our headquarters, hey, you need to, you need to get up to uh, Schenectady to help out David and Linda because they're about to be bombarded by the media. And uh, I jumped on a plane in a matter of a couple hours, and uh, by the time I landed, the whole thing had, was all over the news. A possible break this evening in the search for the killer known as the Unabomber. The FBI has arrested a suspect in Montana after he was fingered by relatives. The media was camped in the mountains of Montana, and they were camped in the driveway of uh, David and Linda in Schenectady. Federal officials tell NBC News they put the man under surveillance after family members found some of his old writings they considered suspicious. Lights have been going on and off throughout the evening here, but they're off now. I would speculate that Dave Kaczynski, his wife, and... His mother, if his mother is still in there, have gone to bed for the evening. The FBI had assured David they would do everything they could to keep his involvement secret. 
Kathy Puckett, who'd been working with him to collect Ted's writings and use them as evidence, knew how important it was to David that he remain anonymous. And now his name was all over the national news. Finally, when I was given the okay to call him, it was way too late to warn him. But I called him, and I heard in the background somebody at the microphone saying, I'm standing in the front yard of the brother of the Unabomber. Guy turned his own brother in. I said, I am so sorry you're going through this because we had talked about keeping everything quiet and how we would do the best we could to do that. And he said, you promised, but you fucked it up. And he hung up. After that call, no one could get through to David and Linda, not even their lawyer, Tony Bisegli. Linda changed their phone number as soon as the news had broken. TV news crews were now camped out in their front yard. When Linda spotted a cameraman climbing a ladder to try to film into their house, she blocked the window with towels and sheets. Molly, who'd been assigned to go see David and Linda, decided she couldn't wait any longer to get through to them. She waited for night, then scrambled through the backyards of several of David and Linda's neighbors, eventually making her way to their back door. I think maybe a dog barked or something as we went through somebody's yards to get to their back door. And I had been in their house because I'd taken their prints, so I, I knew that the back side was where their kitchen was. I understood they were in there with, with uh, Wanda Kaczynski. So I was trying to tap at the back door loud enough for them to hear because I thought they were in the kitchen, but not so loud that the media could hear. And eventually Linda came to the window, made a gesture with her hands like, go away. And then I was like, David, Linda, it's Molly, it's Molly. So she actually opened the door, and I, I just said, I have a message from Tony, and, and uh, got the message through. To them. I just I had written something, essentially. Please call him so he could help them. And uh, so they, they actually, Linda said, you know, we don't trust you. We don't trust any of you. Tony arrived the next day, and David and Linda allowed him to address the dozens of reporters camped out in their front yard. He told them there would be a press conference two days later in Washington, and any media organizations that remained outside David and Linda's house would be barred from attending. That cleared the cameras out. With the media gone, Molly went back to David and Linda's house. She wasn't sure what kind of reception she'd get. They let me in. And then I was, I was, you know, sort of face-to-face with, with what their situation had been and told them I was sorry... I was about what happened, oh. and every time I think about it, it makes me cry. But because uh, they were so kind, and uh, I just told them that it was really unfair the way they had been portrayed. David had trusted the FBI to keep his identity hidden. Now he was international news, the butt of late night jokes. <laughs> As you know, earlier this week, the FBI uh, apprehended, uh, arrested the Unabomber. He was turned in by his brother, the Unisquealer. Thank you so much. That would have come out eventually in a judicial process, certainly. But the way it happened, they just kind of got hit by a sledgehammer. And I just expressed how they should know that none of the people that they dealt with in person would have done that. And that uh, we had their backs. We, we knew that they... We're doing the right thing for the right reasons. 
And uh, Wanda was like, oh, Molly, don't cry. <laughs> so it was <laughs> it was kind of a, an amusing turn of situation, I guess. But um, that's, that's just the kind of people they were and are, uh, Dave and Linda are. A quarter century later, David says he can still feel the trauma of those first days, the awareness that he had become something new, the thing that will eventually be the first line of his obituary. He was now and forever the Unabomber's brother. The part that did feel like a bit of a betrayal, the, the part that really hurt was to realize that uh, something that we'd wanted to, wanted to keep secret, which was our role in this whole thing, was suddenly national news. Um, worse than that, I think it was that I, I would have liked to have, you know, if Ted were ever to know how or why he was arrested, I would have wanted to be the one to tell him. So it kind of added to the trauma of the whole situation. I'm not sure my brother ever would have understood, but I would have appreciated the possibility of trying to explain myself to him in person. David would never get that chance. But other people were talking to Ted, plotting the next move. I tried to take advantage to push the ideas out there. You know, for Christ's sake, what else would you do? Here's your one chance to, to say something when people are listening. And, and you're just pissing in your pants instead of saying something? That's next time on the final episode of Project Unibomb. Project Unibomb is an Apple original podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. This episode was produced by Elliot Adler and me, I'm Eric Benson. Our senior producer is Jonathan Menhivar. Our producer is Melissa Slaughter. Editing by Joel Lovell and Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. Our fact checker is Sarah Ivry. The episode was mixed by Davey Sumner, Jason Richards, Elliot Adler, and Jonathan Menhivar. Studio recording by Brian Standifer at the Texas Monthly Studio. Our artwork is by Guillaume Casasus. Music by Mark Orton and John Hancock. Additional music by Eric Phillips and Jeff Baxter. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. Thanks for listening.